Welcome to Minnesota Jazz Legends 2022. I'm Patty Peterson. In Minnesota, we're very lucky to have many jazz musicians and singers who have performed most of their lives and some never stop performing. It's always amazing to hear their stories and during this show, we'll hear from previously recorded interviews and a live concert performance which took place May 1st at Crooner's Supper Club. We'll find out what drew these artists to the jazz scene and ultimately why they decided to stay with this unique American art form. The featured Minnesota jazz legends are big band leader and educator Steve Wright, award-winning pianist and vocalist Linda Peterson, bassist and author Ollie Lyle, and we will also feature Brazilian-born pianist the late Manfredo Fest. These artists are backed by the house band, Phil Aaron on piano, Kevin Clements on bass, and Phil Hay on drums. This show is brought to you by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and Jazz 88 Radio. Our first Minnesota jazz legend is big band leader, educator, and trumpet man Steve Wright. Steve has been a first-call sideman for many legendary performers and is a premier composer and arranger for numerous special events. He's a big band leader and has recorded a CD of all original music. Steve Wright is considered a valued part of the Twin Cities jazz scene and has been for decades. And now keep your hands together for our first Minnesota jazz legend, Dr. Steve Wright, everybody. Steve Wright. You sound great. Well, thank you. Well, thank you for doing this. Always been trumpet? Always been flugelhorn? 
Yeah, and piccolo trumpet and E flat trumpet back in the uh, the graduate school days. And the name drop a little bit of the ooh, things that you were a part dropping. of. Ooh. Well, as it happened, uh, I come from a musical family, and my dad was the band director in <coughs> excuse me at Burlington High School in Iowa. And uh, but when I was in junior high, we had a great junior high band director who had all of Clifford Brown's albums, and uh, he started probably one of the first. You know, we think of them as middle schools, but junior high uh, jazz ensembles back in the 19... And um, <laughs> and so I got pretty excited about, about the music. Uh, when I got into high school, I ended up going to a summer camp and <clears throat> somehow ended up in the top band at the Indiana University to this one for the second week of a thing. It turns out the uh, lead auto player, who was a year older than I, was some guy named Sanborn. D- Dave, I think it is, yeah. So Dave Sanborn and I have known each other for, oh, good God, almost 60 years. So, uh, But uh, then we ended up in college together, at both Northwestern uh, University, and then we both transferred to Iowa. So I got quite a lot of experience just rubbing shoulders with somebody like that, but also a number of other great players, you know, down in Iowa there, so... But I ended up in the Air Force. Yeah, you did. And you got to talk about who you ended up working with. It was really a coup for you. Well, uh, in 1968, you remember some of you were of an age, I hope, uh, <laughs> that might remember there was a thing called the draft. Musicians were deadly afraid of getting drafted. Thing is, we'd heard that the Washington, D.C. bands were the best place to go. The jobs were guaranteed. You got advanced rank, but you had to audition. So I flew out, and lo and behold, I got into the band called the Airmen of Note. And, Did uh, you hear that? The Airmen of Note. They're still going strong and, and, and attracting some of the best players, young players. And, the thing. and then um, I played third trumpet for a while and then took over the lead trumpet thing. I think I ended up, I found out I was the youngest lead trumpet player they ever had at 23. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but I got out and I eventually made my way here. And what was it that brought you here? Well, I, I had met Jack Gillespie, a trumpet player. Uh, I was on the road with a band, you'll never believe this, the Mexicali Brass. But uh, I met Jack doing some, uh, what we call in the, uh, the time, fair dates, uh, state and, and uh, county fairs that had bands behind all of the acts and stuff. So uh, I called him up that summer after I got out of the Air Force and said, Jack, you got any of those uh, you know about? And he says, why don't you just move up here? <laughs> you know, and, and you did. Yeah. You just touched on another point. You have a big band. You've had a big band. You a record, big band. <laughs> you've recorded with that big band. Yeah, Talk we, about that. Yeah, well, we did a session back in 81 and uh, had a few uh, great players. The sax section was uh, Brian Griffin and Mark Henderson, uh, Dave Carr, uh, Kenny Holman and Kathy Jensen. Nobody good. Well, some people didn't even know who they were then. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But yeah, and I mean, a lot of great players, the great Jimmy Hamilton. And then we went in and recorded uh, eight of my tunes and two of guitarist Rick Cornish's uh, tunes.
Okay, so now I want you to fast forward a little bit. Okay. So you did the big band. You, you've been a writer and an arranger. You've been, um, uh, you've worked with Motown. You've worked with some big names. Name drop a little bit. Uh, well, I was just uh, uh, telling Andrew about playing for Tony Bennett and Peggy Lee out at the old Carlton Celebrity Room. Yeah. And that was uh, Dave Carr and I. He and I would always get called to do um, Rosemary Clooney shows. Fun. And so, I mean, months ahead, her music director would make sure that we were available. Okay. So, But it was those kind of people that were just incredibly fun. I've been putting together a list of, of uh, names of people I've played for, and it's getting <laughs> It's getting and nice and long. <laughs> and all of your work with the Minnesota Orchestra yeah, as well. Yeah, I did and... a lot of things uh, when Doc Severinsen took over the Pops thing. Uh, I had known Doc uh, since 1964. Wow. He uh, gave me a trumpet lesson. He worked with our high school uh, jazz band. Oh, for goodness sakes. And seeing as the director was my dad, somehow I ended up getting a lesson with Doc Severinsen. I don't know. (laughs) So I also want to talk about the fact that you're an educator. You ended up at Gustavus Adolphus. I started at halftime, and then they said, well, we can bump you up, but you got to go and get a degree. A master's degree, so I got a master's. Oh, and then I finished off and got the doctorate. I think I, I did all that in two years and nine months. Not great. But the coolest thing is, is you revisited that college, and you were really nicely surprised about something that happened, and was right here, yeah. right here at Crooners. Tell them what was uh, bestowed upon you. It was actually on on the department, but the. Uh, uh, Dave Stamps, who is now the jazz director there, doing a marvelous job. He's a great guy and fine trombonist. He uh, asked me, oh gosh, even last fall, he says, we're going to do a concert at Crooners to start our tour out. And I'm going, okay, that's, that's cool. And he says, could you come up and maybe sit in in a tune? You know, about every month or so, I'd get a call from him or say, hey, you, you still on for that? So my wife and I came here and sitting over there and before the the uh, concert by the college group started off oh one of my former students showed up the short story of it is they created a jazz touring endowment uh, scholarship in my name uh, so that students who couldn't afford to go on international tours would be able to to get some help from it so uh, this former student of mine pledged twenty five thousand dollars I'm helping out down there. Of course you are. We went over my whole list of 24 years of the top jazz ensemble at a luncheon. It took us close to two hours. And uh, going through it, I was just amazed at how many of them I still... Connect with? Yeah, connect with. It's it's an honor, but it's also a great opportunity for those students, you know. Right, who might not have had that opportunity. So, Dr. Steve Wright, let's have him do another song. Thank you.
words of advice. I was trained as a classical trumpet player. Not everything I did was jazz-oriented, you know. I mean, it was whatever it was, you know. I, I went and played whatever music somebody put in front of me. What is a high point for you? One of the shows we did at uh, uh, the Carlton Celebrity Room was with Tony Bennett as the star, and he came into the room from the back. He came back to the um, trumpet section and said, hey, guys, how are you? You know, he'd introduce himself in his Tony Bennett voice. He says, you know, guys, this is an awful blankety-blank good trumpet section. (laughs) A a rather colorful (laughs) word, but he... uh, And we go, okay, we've arrived. And then Peggy Lee, uh, on the last night, uh, we were all leaving, and she said, Thanks for your lead trumpet playing. So that's all you need. Dr. Steve Wright, thank you so much for doing this well, with me. it's been a me. pleasure. Thank you very much. You are listening to the 2022 Minnesota Jazz Legends with honorees Steve Wright, Linda Peterson, Manfredo Fest, and Ollie Lyle. Bassist Dolly Lyle is our next Minnesota jazz legend. This multi-instrumentalist has not only played music in the Twin Cities, but all over the country. His personal experiences led him to the most prestigious supper clubs in the Twin Cities, but also led him to become an advocate for social change. Ollie is an author and a painter, and continues to play upright bass in many musical groups to this day.
Molly Lyle. So good to have you here. Grew up in a musical family. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, we uh, we had a lot of influence uh, in the family with uh, mom being the um, church organist and uh, piano teacher. She she gave each one of us a chance to sit down at the piano. Some of us took it up, some didn't, you know. <laughs> and we had uh, uh, the school bands. Uh, we we had a lot of different instruments. I tried a few instruments. I started out on the sax, but then. I went to the trumpet in uh, our house. We had Chet Baker and uh, Miles Davis albums, and uh, that was uh, that was kind of a big influence. Yeah. So uh, later on, I got drafted into service. We were out on bivouac, uh, bivouac courses where you go out in the field, and uh, they want you to rough it and know what it's like to to rough it out in the field. Coming back to the base, we heard the post band playing up on the hill, and I just said, kind of uh, rhetorically, "Hmm, when are you getting that?" Well, it was uh, at a time when uh, President Johnson had kind of upped the numbers for going to Vietnam. And I, I said, oh boy, this, this could be it for me, going to Vietnam. So, so anyway, I finished basic training. Okay. And then uh, I got orders. Uh, this uh, sergeant that I was marching next to was up in personnel. And uh, he saw my record, you know, school band this, school band that. And they invited me back to uh, go to band school at uh, Fort Leonard Wood. In that band, you, what, were you still playing a horn? In the band, I was playing a trumpet. And uh, I played uh, trumpet in uh, some R&B groups while I was here. In the that, Twin Cities? Yeah. What introduced you to the upright bass? After band school, I went to uh, Fort Monroe, Virginia. That was the United States Continental Army uh, Command Band. If you have to be in the service uh, during a war, I mean, that, that's that's the best best way to it's be. the way in. to go. We, we had our morning... Uh, uh, formations in the uh, rehearsal hall on the post, and they had a lot of bases up there, and I, I started uh, plunking around on the base and uh, liking it more and more as, as I did it. One day, uh, somebody from upstairs uh, in the offices came down and said, who's playing that bass? And they said, Lyle. So he went back upstairs, and uh, a couple of days later, we were getting our uh, assignments, uh, and they needed a combo over at the um, Fort Langley Air Force Base. That was right across from us. There's a general who was getting another star, I think. So, so they were, so they were, they needed a combo for that. The guy came down and he started naming the group as a quintet. They named my name, and I, I almost fainted. You know, I mean, I just was so surprised <laughs> to, wow. okay. to to get it. So I went over and did it. The, the the gig turned out to be okay. So that was really my first gig on bass. That is so yeah. cool. When you got back to the Twin Cities, we're just going to move forward a little bit. You were still playing bass, right? Yes. And uh, you weren't very old, about 25. And what happened? You started playing some pretty amazing places, right? I, I started playing about a week after I got out of service. I got a gig. It was at... Uh, the Valley Pizza in Dinkytown. <laughs> and uh, they, <laughs> they had uh, music downstairs from the restaurant. You know, it was a start, so played a few gigs after that until I got a gig uh, at the top of the Hilton where, where they have the, the, the carousel. Right, and, and, and who did you work with? That was uh, Billy Wallace, wonderful piano player. And uh, it was a quintet up there, uh, a lot of good players. That was uh, a very fun gig. After that, I um, was introduced to the leader of the Point Supper Club group. Uh, that was Percy Hughes. Uh, said, okay, come on, let's work together. So they had a uh, reputation for fine dining and good music, right? So um, everything was great about the gig except 
coming and going to the gig. Now you have quite a story to right. tell about this. Would you touch I on it for a moment? I started uh, getting stopped by the police out there. It was racial profiling. And uh, it, it was terrible, and it, it was getting worse. And so I had to do something about it. So I went to uh, the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, to see what could be done about it. And they said, yeah, we, we're familiar with this, this problem out here. So unbeknownst to me, there was a judge out in Plymouth who used to be a trial lawyer. And uh, he wanted to get back off the bench and, and get back on the floor and do cases because that's what he was comfortable doing. So he went to the ACLU and uh, said, are there any pending cases here? They gave him my case. We got the case in court. It was a two-week trial for this uh, situation. The jury deliberated for three and a half days. This case, by the way, was uh, in federal court and it was under the uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act. So that was like six years uh, after. So. It uh, was really um, a, a situation at the time because I was, I was going to the U. I was trying to go to school, but I, I wanted to stick with this and, and, and see it through. As years went on, though, I know that I'm really fast-forwarding, you got a formal apology. Not only did your case get heard and you won not too long ago, you got a rap at the door when you were finishing the novel, a jazz novel, and the mayor of Golden Valley did a very nice thing. I was finishing up the book at home, and uh, there was a knock at the door. And uh, I opened it up and uh, fell at the door with a suit and tie. He introduced himself as the mayor of Golden Valley, and he said he came to apologize for 50 years ago, you know, and uh, it's amazing. something I never thought would happen, you know, but uh, he, he did. I wrote the book as a 50-year anniversary for a successful civil rights case, and then also to uh, commemorate the 100th birthday of my lawyer, Bill Merlin. I just wanted to do a little sketch of what racial profiling is like. I mean, uh, people of color know what, what racial profiling is like. So I did this little sketch and did the book uh, that I call A Valley Too Far. That's the main title. And uh, the subtitle is uh, A Jazz Novel. And what I was trying to do was weave uh, the civil rights case into the jazz scene. That's what a lot of people uh, tell me that they, they like about the book. King Solomon's Mind had a Brazilian group, and um, that was Herb Schoenbaum's gig. Herb Schoenbaum was a, a ham radio operator, and so was Manfredo Fest. Wow. And somehow he hooked up with Manfredo Fest down in Sao Paulo, Brazil. They got their heads together, and the owner of the uh, White House, Herb uh, Sheckman, booked them for a future date. I think that was the top of the year in 68, I believe it was. And it was uh, Manfredo Fest on piano, a hater guy, a brilliant drummer. And he also brought his uh, percussionist, Radio Groat. So that was uh, where we went after King Solomon's. How old were you, do you think, at this point? Uh, at that point, uh, 28. I know you've played in groups and configurations around the Twin Cities. You're still gigging. You're still loving playing? Oh, yeah. You know, and, and this area just has so many wonderful players. It's just we want more venues. You That's know. exactly but right. But I'll tell you what, uh, the best venue in town is right where we're standing here, Crooners. All right. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Ollie, yeah. will you do another song? Sure. Yes. Okay. Ollie Lyle, everybody.
of a high point in this music business? Uh, as far as places to play, in spite of the trouble out there, I think I would say one of the high points was the point because it was with uh, Percy Hughes. Carol Martin was the singer. She was, she was a star. A low point? Well, low point, it goes back to the same thing. It was a, a mixed bag there with the high point and the low point being together. Low point being the police problem out there. You know, it didn't, it didn't spoil my fun, really. Do you have any advice for the young players? By all means, keep playing. Stick with it is what I would say, because you know, jazz is a wonderful art, American-born art. Look back at all the uh, wonderful stars that have come and gone and uh, be inspired by that. appreciate you being with me today so much. Thank you very much. You are listening to the 2022 Minnesota Jazz Legends with honoree Steve Wright, Ollie Lyle, Manfredo Fest, and Linda Peterson. Award-winning pianist and vocalist Linda Peterson is our next Minnesota Jazz Legend. Linda grew up learning about jazz at a very young age. After all, her parents were active musicians in the Twin Cities music scene, and she and her siblings soon followed suit. Linda is a powerhouse female jazz artist who has attracted audiences globally, not only because of her engaging original songs, but because of her Pied Piper personality. Linda is a joy to watch perform, and as her sister, I'm one of her biggest fans. Meters running up in the taxi, and you're stuck in the back seat. The driver can't move, so you might as well groove. Cause baby, you got to be somewhere. Sitting in your car in the slow lane. Making you late for your fast train. Well, just mellow out, cause there ain't no doubt. You always got to be somewhere. Relax. You got to laugh. Let the moment pass You picked the longest line at the grocery Same for the bank and the laundry That's just the game, don't let it drive you insane You got to be somewhere I was two and a half the first time I sang on the radio. Mother must have just taken hours to, to get me to sing this tune, Buttons and Bows. It's a hard tune. I remember hearing a recording of you singing Orange Colored Skies. I think I was five, flash bam, alakazam. We had no idea growing up the quality of musicianship that our folks possessed. They were phenomenal musicians, both. Hey, Kevin. 
Kevin, take a little bit of this. I took uh, several years of piano from the nuns at Holy Angels, and then I had uh, some uh, some voice lessons from lady who was actually a legit slash opera sort of teacher. And how old were you? Oh, 12-ish maybe. But uh, my fun after school would be to come home and try to sing and play some of the tunes that mom and dad would listen to, Ella Fitzgerald and that great American songbook. That was kind of what we cut our teeth on and then got sidelined by the great rock and roll of our day. Meters running up in the taxi, yeah, Kevin. And you're stuck in the backseat. Driver can't move, so you might as well groove. Cause baby, you got to be somewhere. There you are, sitting in your car in the slow lane. Making you late for the fast train, you New Yorkers. Just mellow out, cause there ain't no doubt. You always got to be somewhere. You have got to relax. Just got to laugh. Breathe in, breathe out. Now that's what I'm talking about. Well, if it rains, you forgot your umbrella. Don't let the day get you down. Just grin at the gloom and crank up your tune. Cause baby, you gotta be somewhere. Thank you everybody. Mom gave me my first job playing piano at the Old Log Theater. I played a little cocktail piano, terrified, scared to death. And what you don't realize is that, you know, your backdrop for their fun, they're not scrutinizing you, but you think, oh my goodness, I'm good. if I make a mistake, it's going to be the end of the world. No, it isn't, you know. <laughs> right. But what about singing? When did that come into play? I was 23, and Dad used to book the music at the old ranch house, and there was a very good musician, a man named Paul Wesley, played Hammond Orr. And I was the stand-up vocalist with Paul Wesley. And I wow. it was the days of the Bobby Gentry, Choctaw Bridge. I learned a lot about, you know, being comfortable in my own skin. However, still to this day, I'm far more comfortable behind my piano. I get still a little case of the nerves if it's got to be me out front. And after the ranch house, were you playing piano and singing? Yes, I was. I think the Normandy for their happy hour, and that was the Carol King days. And I, I also was playing some of my original music. And one of the patrons thought I wrote some decent tunes. And he said, I'd like to have you call this fellow Don Heckman, who was then the A&R man at, at RCA Records. And he said, call him. Here's a number. And I was lucky enough to actually get an appointment with him and and he gave me a contract with RCA, and that was, oh, 74-ish. We did a demo of about four or five pop tunes. They were, you know, I was going to be the next Carole King in my mind. So you got a half of an album done. Why was it only a half? Don just pretty much just got his job, and then when everybody got fired and they cleaned house and all the new acts were dropped. And so I kind of got my foot in the door, and then the door slammed. But it was still and all just a great experience. Just so much color in New York. It was a fantastic time. Did you stay there beyond the time of your recording that contract? Yes, a little bit and um, met my second husband there. We got married in 1975. He was, fell from Brooklyn. We uh, moved back here in 1978 when my daughter was born. So you come back here. What was happening as far as Linda, the piano player, singer? I went back to the Normandy until they closed the piano bar. 
So I was back at the Normandy for maybe four years. There was a lot to do in those days. And then you started working in Europe. So the Sheraton in Copenhagen had a piano bar, and I'm being brave here, but I want to do this. I was there for three months at that juncture, and my kids came over, and they went to international school. I went over there the first time in 85. I was invited to do the Copenhagen Jazz Festival about four times and and met the greatest musicians over there. And then uh, our brother Billy was there and came up to make this record with me, the Too Late to Leave Early record, but... When was the last time you worked in Copenhagen? I think it was four years ago. This is a funny story. Ricky, Billy, and I were all in Copenhagen on the first night, the opening night of the festival. Billy was the MC of all the jam sessions at Montmartre, the famous jazz house there. Ricky was with David Sanborn at another place, and I was at the Paradise Cafe. And so there we were, all three of us, opening the jazz festival on the same night, but not together. But you also have a really deep CD that you did with an artist out of Argentina. Oh, that was a nice experience. Our brother Ricky, he was working with a gentleman from Buenos Aires named Luis Salinas. I heard that music and just, I don't know what happened to me. Beautiful guitar music. And I, it just spoke to me in a way that I can't say in words. And then the seed was born. I really want to go to Buenos Aires. I want to see this place. I want to see this place. And Ricky arranged for us to meet Luis, a girlfriend of mine from Cocoa Beach. She said, you love this place so much. She said, why don't you write a song about this city that you love so well? I've never written a song about a city. Well, the more I thought about that, tango and music fills the night and color of the place and Buenos Aires dreams was born. And so then my lofty goal was to record it in Buenos Aires with the great man himself, Luis Salinas, and I got to do that. I would say that the experience of realizing the dream of doing that record with that man the highlight. Buenos Aires, sun. Buenos Aires, rain. Though I have to leave, still my heart remains. Tango fills the Love affair is something you need, and it calls my name. friend Jim Wilkie actually put me on the map with the Too Late to Leave Early record. He liked that. I got some national notoriety on that song in North America because of Jim Wilkie. And his show was called Jazz After Hours. I penned that tune, Jazz After Hours, for Jim Wilkie. And he said it's his personal treasure. So that means the world to me. You had originals on that one as well? I had originals on that one. Yes, I did. And our brother Billy Those are such great arrangements by Billy, all of them. And I had such great players from here. And my son Jason played on Mockingbird. Just killed it.
Honey, have you heard? He's gonna buy me a mockingbird. And if that mockingbird don't sing, he's gonna buy me a diamond ring. Tell me what inspires you to write music. I think a phrase to just jump back to the Too Late to Leave Early album that we did in Copenhagen. I had gotten that title from a Catholic priest, Father Bill McGrade, who was a friend of our family. He loved jazz and he would come in and see us. And this one Wednesday night, and it was 1984, he puts himself down on the bar stool, 10 30, 11 o'clock. He said, Well, Linda, it's too late to leave early. Father Bill, I said, that's a great line. And I said, where'd you get that? He said, oh, I've been saying that for years. And oh. I said, I'm going to see what I can do with that. And, and the rest is history. Did you give him writer's credit? You bet I did. Uh-huh. And oh, he framed the check he got from ASCAP. Now it's too late to leave early. So I think I'll stay. Set him up, Joe, I'm going to have one more. Band's got another set to play. And I sure like that bass man My, he's playing sweet It's too late to leave early And that's all right with me If you had advice to young people, what would you say to them? I would say a couple of things. I would say be a well-rounded musician. Don't just stick to one bag. You know, if you want to work, get to know tunes. Learn how to be facile on your instrument so that you can transpose. You know, learn how to play in keys other than what's written in the real book. Man, Brother Bill, my, he's playing sweet. And it's too late to leave early. Lord, you might find me dancing in the street. Long as you play me some bassy, and you play me some fun. Lady, won't you sing me a little ceremony? Just stand the night with mom. When all of my friends are on hand Phil, he's on drums Gonna break out the monks We're gonna toast that piano man Cause he sure done his homework We're gonna leave no song unsung It's too late to leave early Cause the night has just begun Ah, you know this night has just begun here at Crooners. Best place to play in this town. The night has just begun. The night has just begun. Oh, yeah. 
Peterson. That's an exciting life, Linda. It has been fun, it, and I'm not done. <laughs> Thank you so much for being a part of this show. I have enjoyed this so much. Thank you, Patty. You are listening to the 2022 Minnesota Jazz Legends with honorees Steve Wright, Linda Peterson, Ollie Lyle, and Manfredo Fest. Our next Minnesota jazz legend is the late Brazilian pianist Manfredo Fest. Manfredo became a transplant to the Twin Cities, living here for a couple of decades, and he quickly became one of the most notable artists in the Twin Cities jazz scene. He drew great attention from major labels and released many CDs with the Brazilian jazz feel. Today, his son Phil Fest joins us to tell us the many wonderful stories about growing up with his father and how he came to one day perform right with him. Welcome to the show, Phil Fest. Thank you for doing Jazz Legends on behalf of your dad. Oh, it is my honor, and I'm so stoked that you asked me to participate in this and uh, represent my father. I'd like to know a little bit about his background, his parents, where his music and passion for it came from. My grandfather, so my father's father, uh, migrated to Brazil from Germany. Uh, in the very late 1920s. And uh, he was uh, a classical musician and uh, had an opportunity to go there uh, representing Steinway pianos. And then he was quickly able to establish a music school. And my father Manfredo was born and uh, basically raised in that environment. How old was Manfredo when he began showing an interest in music? Pretty early on, four or five years old, somewhere around there. And you know, my father was born legally blind. So unlike the other kids, he couldn't really be outside doing certain things. So music was one of the options of recreation. My, My grandfather was really strict, real old school, you know, and the classical. So my father had a lot of classical. So when you say he had a lot of classical in him, I know you have to sight read those notes like crazy. Mm-hmm. And if he was born blind, then tell me how that worked. Uh, he met my mother very early on because my mother was also studying with my grandfather. And so my mother started helping my father. She would take the music and she would basically dictate it to him and he would write everything in Braille. And of course you can't stack the notes in Braille, but between his ear and having you know, her tell him every note, note for note, literally, uh, he was able to uh, put it all together. Did he go into college and study music as well? He did go into college. Uh, they both did, both my parents. My mom pretty much became his you know, right-hand person because she recognized in him the extreme talent. You know, we're talking a lot here about classical, but uh, here in the 1950s and whatnot, when they were, you know, teenagers and growing up, but they were really enthralled by the American jazz that was being played down there. And that really was catching everybody's ear, listening to, you know, records by Oscar Peterson and George Shearing and the music of Brazil that was being played all over the place, the sambas. This is pre-Bossa Nova we're talking about here, so. um, What year are you talking when you say pre-Bossa Nova? You know, we're talking like 1940s and 50s when 
when they would have been growing up. Bossa Nova, as we know it, technically started in 1958, but it was brewing before that because what's Bossa Nova? It's really a softened samba with you know jazz harmonies. The ingredients were all coming together all over the place. father, I'm going to say, we're talking about 15, 16 years old. And they realized that not only were they uh, attracted to the same kind of music, but they became a love item as well. Yes, they did. Did she continue to play by chance? She did. Yes, still plays to this day. Still puts in two to three hours of piano every day because, you know, my dad was really the talent. So she took a back seat and wrote all the charts out for him and the musicians and uh, they would co-compose. So a lot of my dad's recorded material was co-written by my mother. My mother has writing credits on uh, at least half of the original material that's in our catalog. So in Brazil, what style of music was Manfredo performing? From the early days, everything from European polkas, the samba, all the music that would have been happening in southern Brazil at that time. So he was in Brazil until what age? Yeah, so what happened was, uh, you know, my parents, they both grew up in a town called Porto Alegre, and that's the town I'd mentioned earlier. Right around 1961, they left for Sao Paulo. You figure Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro are kind of like the LA and New York, if you will, of, of Brazil. You know, Brazilian jazz, bossa nova thing really started to take off. So my father went to Sao Paulo and in Rio de Janeiro, you had the more the guitar player, singer, songwriter types. Uh, whereas in Sao Paulo, you had, it was more of a jazz piano thing. So you got to remember my father with the Manfredo Fest trio and the Zimbo trio. These were Brazilian musicians that were trying to play American jazz, but it was going through their filter, so it was coming out as samba jazz. So by the mid-60s, uh, he'd already put out about five albums and was creating you know, a bit of a buzz and a disc jockey from Minneapolis, Minnesota of all places by the name of Herb Schombaum got wind of it and made a trip to Brazil to see what was going on and had met him personally. Basically that led to her bringing my father into Minneapolis to do a, a, a two week stint at the White House. And this would have been in 1966. That's what brought him to the Twin Cities. So your dad got here in 1966, played the White House for two yes. weeks. How is it that your dad ended up staying two decades? What transpired in those two weeks? Well, I think, you know, he saw the reaction. First of all, he was extremely well received. And knowing that the Brazilian music was really kind of getting a nice foothold in the U.S., he figured you had the first wave of bossa nova of the early 60s, you know, when Stan Getz brought Joan was in a Struge Gilberto over it. Then in the late 60s, I, I like to call it the second wave that came up of the you know Brazilian jazz bossa nova artists. And so he was a part of that. It was just an opportunity to come to the U.S. And uh, I guess it's uh, a lot of people's dream. remember some of not only the nightclubs, but maybe even some of the musicians that he worked with? 
Let's see. Some of my earliest memories, uh, I remember there was a club in the early 70s, uh, like St. Paul area, there was a club called the Fox and Hounds. Of course, the Dakota when it was at Bandana Square. There was a club in Bloomington called Howard Wong's. And for many years, you know, from when the St. Paul Hotel opened up in downtown St. Paul, right up until about the time we moved, I mean, he was there as a solo pianist for many years. As far as the players go, growing up, I can remember all these wonderful musicians coming over to rehearse all the time, like a very young Maria Schneider taking lessons with my father, you know, before she had gone on to fame and fortune and bass players like uh, Gary Rayner and drummers Gordy Knutson. I remember Jay Epstein from then, people, and not to mention all the people that studied with him. So yeah, a lot of fond memories. The first recording under his name was a recording that came out in 1972, a record called After Hours. You know, I don't know too much about that record because I was still really young, but it's out there, you know, it's up on YouTube and it got re it's been re-released a handful of times. It's a good combination of original material with some, you know, tunes that were happening at that time. And so your mom and dad and you are all here. And you said initially he was here for two weeks, but it ended up being much longer than that, didn't it? It, it really did. The Twin Cities became the hub, the home base. Figure, you know, not long after I came around, got a call from Sergio Mendes that was offering him the music director spot with the offshoot band of Brazil 66, a band called Bossa Rio, you know, which also recorded a bunch of records for AM. And Bossa Rio was as good as Brazil 66 and the two bands would tour together. They would leave, go to another city like LA or Chicago for a year, maybe two or three years, but they'd always come back to the Twin Cities. So close our eyes, for that's a lovely way to be. You told me that Sergio even produced one of his discs. With Sergio Mendes, now we have to go back to the Bossario days. So Sergio never produced an album, but he produced a bunch of like 45s that my dad put out for AM record. Their affiliation was from like 1968 through 70, 71. And in 1976, he released a self-produced album called Brazilian Dorian Dream, which became kind of an underground cult classic that featured St. Paul native Roberta Davis doing the wordless vocal and uh, the rhythm section of Alejo Paveda and Thomas Kinney. That album spawned all of those great tunes that my dad wrote, like Facing East and Brazilian Dorian Dream, the title track, and That's What She Says, and I Am Happy, a tune my mother wrote. know at the time but somebody had brought that stuff over to england and that was you know that record became part of the uh the acid jazz dance craze of the late 70s where jazz and disco were kind of getting fused 
We didn't even know that was going on, but that record was huge over there. So Sound 80 was where uh, the Brazilian Doring Dream was recorded. Uh, an engineer by the name of Tom Young, who had engineered that record, he went on to become one of the pioneers of digital recording, He's starting a label called DMP, which was an acronym for Digital Music Products. And those were like direct to two-track digital recordings. And a lot of those recordings ended up being used at schools all around the country as examples of quality engineering. some great luck landing another record deal with another very famous label. Talk about that. During the DMP uh, days, my mom can be pretty tenacious and she kept calling Carl Jefferson, who ran a label out in California, Concord Jazz. They signed him to a four album deal. By the time those albums started getting recorded, then I was fortunate enough, you know, the producer heard me and said, okay, he could be part of the band. And I'm featured on all four of those records and each one actually has an original of mine. That was old school. That was two six hour sessions. I mean, these were live in the studio takes. That was some serious on the job training for me. Though Manfredo came back to some of his original type of music on the DMP label again called Just Jobim. When he was approached with that idea, you know, he jumped at it because I think Antonio Carlos Jobim was really his, probably his favorite composer. Jobim, by the way, had told him over the phone that he thought Manfredo was one of the greatest interpreters of his music. Needless to say, that made his day. Unfortunately, that would become his final recording as a leader. And it was a few months after that that you know, he passed away. I can't thank you enough for sharing your time with us here for the Minnesota Jazz Legends on behalf of your father, Manfredo Fest. Phil Fest, thank you so much. Well, we want to thank you on behalf of the Fest family, and uh, it's an honor for us and that he's being honored like this. So we're, uh, we're tickled pink. Thank you. You've been listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends 2022 with honorees Steve Wright, Ollie Lyle, Linda Peterson, and Manfredo Fest. Executive producer and host is Patty Peterson. The featured musicians were backed by the house band Phil Aaron on piano, Kevin Clements on bass, and Phil Hay on drums. Production engineers are Steve Weiss and Scott Melchow from Creation Audio and Plus Six Productions. Editing and mixing by Scott Melchow. Special thanks to Cooner Supper Club for the use of their stage for the live concert portion. Minnesota Jazz Legends 2022 is funded by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and Jazz 88 Radio. 